Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, it's Annika. Welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. Today's conversation is all about using minimal pairs the bread and butter of a paediatric speech pathologist's work, but an intervention approach that definitely has a knack. Who better to chat with about minimal pairs than Rebecca Ranking? Rebecca is a paediatric speech pathologist with a special interest and passion in speech sound disorders. Rebecca works at Attune Health Centres in Newcastle, and if you're thinking her name sounds familiar, it is probably because you have crossed paths with her via her online platform, Adventures in Speech Pathology. Thank you so much for joining me, Rebecca. I'm so excited to be here. I've been waiting for your email to talk about anything speech pathology related and minimal pairs, as you know, is my passion. So, Well, you know what? I actually feel like I know you as a colleague from interacting with you on your um, online platform. So it's actually a real pleasure to meet and chat to you in person. I've been looking forward to it too. Yay. All right. So Minimal pairs have been around for quite a while. We all know that. Most of us learnt a lot about minimal pairs at uni, but I think a nice place to start would be to have a really nice refresher about what the actual evidence base for minimal pairs actually is. When I first started looking into minimal pairs, I actually, I thought I knew a lot about the approach. And then when I started looking into it, I realised that there were so many things I wasn't aware of. And most of the journal articles I looked at, they're actually from the 80s, 90s and early 2000s. So that's where I guess the bulk of the research mm. has come from. And I think I've downloaded about 35 articles um, on the approach, but there are more out there. And I, I was confused, but I was excited as well. I was confused because everyone was saying something a little bit different and doing things mm. a little bit differently. And I had this idea that minimal pairs was a really nice recipe. You know, you follow Mm. this really clear, you know, this is your first step. This is your second step. This is your third step. And the more I read into it, the more I realized that everyone tweaked and did things a little bit differently. Mm, Absolutely. So has there been any recent research? I know I agree. Most of that research came out when I went through uni. That's why it was such a big deal when I was trained. But what's some of the more recent research uh, into minimal pairs looking at or suggesting? I haven't haven't seen anything too recent, Mm. to be honest. I think we know that it's a really good um, intervention. I think what we're seeing more in the speech sound disorders area, to be honest, is approaches like the complexity approach. And I think we're looking at how do different approaches compare to each other? Because mm-hmm. there is a lot of research out there on minimal pairs and we know it's effective. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what's really missing though in the minimal pairs research is um, 
what are the specific ingredients that we need? So like intensity and and dosage Mm. and things like that. So when I was reading this literature, I was like, I've got more questions for you researchers, you know, like there are questions that haven't been answered out there. So I think there's more to come, but I think what we do know is that is very effective for children with, you know, mild to up to severe, you know, speech, um, phonological, um, disorders or impairments um so we know that and we kind of know our age group um and I think it kind of feels like researchers are like we know a lot about this we've got a good little evidence base and I think it's been a bit quiet I mm. get I feel like it's been a little bit quiet in in the minimal pairs pairs yeah yeah so a couple of, I mean, I'm interested whether there's research around this and it could be quite old, but I just know with different colleagues, one area that um, people do differently is about the number of pairs to use. Is there research about that? Because I was always like, it has to be five. And then I've got people that are like, no, three. And I'm just, is there anything in regards to how many is most effective to use? Yeah. So I'm going to start by saying Minimal pairs to me is all about options. Mm-hmm. So if you know your options, you can kind of go different ways, but you have to understand what the options are. So there was a study, I think it was in 1991 um, with Albert and, and colleagues, and they did show that three to five minimal pairs okay. is effective and that children can generalise to untrained words. So that's good. Okay. But their study also showed that that wasn't enough for some children. So they added mm. more pairs in. So some children, I think it was like 14% of the of the kids in their study needed 10 pairs, which is 20 words, mm. 10 pairs to generalise. And then some kids still didn't. So mm. I guess it's like, yeah, you've got your options. Mm. Me personally, I usually stick with about five, but it depends on the pattern. Um, I might have eight pairs um, because, as I said, there's so many options that that come into it. But I feel like five, it's a pretty good place to start knowing mm. that you have options to mm. increase um, if you want to. Right. And is there any research then about how many phonological processes you can target with minimal pairs at once? Most of the studies that I read, they they usually stuck with one pattern. Yeah. And I think it's because you have to think about if you've got a 30-minute session, Mm. if you spread yourself too thin, which is I was so guilty of doing this, Mm. okay, in younger years, I was like, let's do, you know, three patterns, you know, let's do fronting, I don't know, stopping and and gliding in one session. But I wasn't getting high practice trials in. Yeah, right, yeah. when I think about it, I think, do I have a half an hour session with this child? Do I have a 45 minute session? Do I have a one hour session? If I want to get, you know, really high practice trials in, which is like my goal, you know, when a child can say those contrasts, like when they can say key and they can say T if they're fronting, I want a hundred correct practices of those, you know, those velar, the mm. K and G. So can I get a hundred practices or, you know, a very high dose mm. in 30 minutes and do two different patterns Process. at once yeah yeah right yeah. yeah but then the other thing I think is well if the child is stopping but they also have cluster reduction if I chose cluster reduction and we worked on the s can that then maybe impact stopping mm. and and lessen the impact that stopping has so it's just there's lots of options and I guess clever thinking mm. about 
what you're going to target and what the sounds are going to look like and, yeah, options. Mm-hmm. As I said, this is going to be my key. It's all about <laughs> options and decisions because you can make so much change if you know that there are options available out there. And unfortunately, I know as SLPs we just prefer, like I said, just give mm. me the steps and I'll follow that. Yeah. But you just have to have a good understanding about the research um, yeah. and to know what you can do. Yeah, because there's a high level of decision-making that still needs to go on around the research, isn't there? <laughs> so much. But it's yeah. kind of cool because, you know, when a, and when a child isn't, when they're stuck or they're not progressing, you can tweak something and mm. still be following the minimal pairs approach. You know, you can mm. tweak. Um, I think there was a really great study um, that uh, Dr. Elise Baker and Sharon McLeod did, and I think it was two two kids and they were doing I'm pretty sure it was cluster reduction and I think that they felt like they were both you know kind of similar in that that's what they were both treating and and one child made made great gains and the other one didn't and it was like well why did this child yeah you know progress so quickly and this child didn't and I think they added in fronting or something like that um they added in you know extra elements into their Mm. um treatment plan just to to see if that kind of um you know, spurred on, you know, the, mm. the progress and the generalization and change. So mm. it's yeah. interesting. So, yeah, we get a framework, but mm-hmm. we still need a lot of clinical decision making around that all the yeah. time, which is, I guess, exciting too, isn't it? Yeah. All right. One of the biggest problems, this is, you know, you will say this to me as well, is that you bring your minimal pairs out, put them on the table. The child is unable to say the target sound. We've all been there. Many, many times. (laughs) What do you do, Rebecca, in that situation? So I wouldn't even bring out minimal pairs at at that stage first. Sometimes, you know, there is that that articul that articulation component mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's not just about that the child can't make the contrast sometimes it's like well that I can't actually say the sound yeah, I'm not exactly. even stimulable for the sound so I, I have lots of options in my head um sometimes I might just think okay let's just think let's just think articulation let's just get articulation on the brain and let's try every single trick to elicit that sound you know is a vowel sound going to facilitate it um do they need you know a mirror what cue can I bring out and I get the sound mm-hmm. first and then I move on to minimal pairs so that's mm-hmm. one of my options I did that with a little one who was not stimulable for L and we did you know a whole session just on getting this tongue up in the spot and you know she did a lot of practice at home and then when we came back we could jump straight into minimal pairs therapy and they generalized in like three sessions it was amazing Mm. it was so fast because Mm. she she got it like she understood she just couldn't make the contrast so that's that's one of your options you kind of I guess think articulation for a second you know and get the sound um but I didn't know this until I started looking into minimal pairs, there's actually, I kind of like two approaches, you know, like researchers did things differently. And, you know, there was um, some researchers in the, I think it was early nineties and they did what they called the perception production approach. So you kind of know what the targets are in your head. You know that eventually you're going to be contrasting the words, but you put away the ones that the child can say. So if it's fronting, you put away the the T and D Mm -hmm. words because you know that they can do them and you kind of 
I'm going to, you know, dumb it down, I guess, um, have that articulation mindset, but you use it with those five K and G words that you know that you're going to be focusing on in minimal pairs. So it might be key um, and mm. you've got your T card, you know, tucked away and you use all those cues again, you know, open up your mouth, put your tongue back, can you get it back there? And you're practicing with words like key and you're really focusing on that core set. And then once they're at, you know, a, a pretty good level, um, then you bring those contrasts out so that mm. if the child says T when they're looking at key, you can make them aware that that doesn't make sense, that that's, that's not what they said. So mm-hmm. that's how I kind of look at it. You don't don't rush into minimal pairs because if you throw it at a child and you're mm. like, wait, do you mean T or key? And they say T, but they mean key, yes. but they can't say it. They're just yes. going to feel like, oh, absolutely, that's not what I meant. You know, You've and just it's got overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, they just disengage from the process too early. It's really refreshing yeah. to hear, hear you say that. I feel like there has been a point in my career um, where I was like, you can't step out of minimal pairs and go to a traditional Arctic approach. That's the wrong thing to do. And I don't even know where that came from, <laughs> but I feel like I had that for a little while. So it's really yeah. refreshing to hear you say, well, it's actually okay. It's actually okay to step to that more articulation yeah. approach initially and then jump back well, in. Look, this is, that's just my clinical experience. Mm. Like I know the minimal pairs research pretty well I'm definitely not a guru I feel like someone like Dr Elise Baker could you know recite every um researcher and you know the year and everything like that I've done a lot of reading but I I don't have that research brain but I guess I I've started to rely on I'm a really good clinician Mm. and I can read kids and I know that the research says that this is a great framework but I'm going to trust myself and trust my relationship with this child and trust my skills and try something. Mm. And, you know, like I said, take one session and really just Mm. focus on the sound Mm -hmm. first and then we do minimal pairs. Um, And that's where I feel like um, my skills have just increased a lot is I'm trusting myself. I know my framework. I am applying it. But there are some times, you know, where you just have to trust your clinical skills. Mm. And at the end of the day, you know, research, the research, they don't deviate down that Mm. because they're following their very strict process. So we have to trust our clinical knowledge more, but still have a really good grasp on the framework and Mm. know where it's coming from. Mm. So if we look at the framework from doing minimal pairs at that word level, how do you move up? So you've got the child, they seem to have mastered at word level. How do you move up to phrase level and sentence level? Because I do find, um, even with colleagues that I work with, that sometimes once you start stepping up, that's where sometimes as clinicians we want to step out. (laughs) And I'm just wondering what your tips are for staying on track with minimal pairs as you start kind of moving through the complexity levels. Well, what I found was interesting when I read you know, all those studies is that a lot of researchers, they just stayed at the word level and the word level is enough for many, for many kids, not for all kids. The word level is enough for many kids to generalize Mm. to untrained words. So I do stick at the word level a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm one of those people I like to poke and prod and I like to see how far I can push sometimes so sometimes Mm. I'll I might see and throw it in a sentence or I'll throw it in a game um throw a word in like let's say I'm going to give fronting as as an example because I just have fronters for life you know (laughs) 
pay in G is like oh, it's the the sound yeah. that I struggle with the most and I just get yeah. fronters it's just they just come to me but um you know I might um throw a phrase like um can I have with mm. the ke or I want to go or my go and I'll see if we can throw something in like that where it's a bit game oriented um and I'll see if I can throw a target word in a phrase or sentence so sometimes I might just do that just at the end or I might have that as a break but generally I stick at the word level Mm. um I've actually copy I I want to kind of quote Dr Elise Baker because she had a really nice framework and this is what really helped me um she says that if the child is not generalizing, you know, at the word level, then you might want to incorporate some phrase and sentence work. If the child is achieving 90% accuracy on their treatment words without a model. Mm -hmm. Um, And that if there's minimal generalization within like a month to six weeks of twice weekly intervention. So I want you to think like, well, am I providing intervention? You know, is this child 90% you know, uh, uh, for about six weeks, receiving intervention twice with a high dose of about 100. And I'd bet that most SLPs aren't um, doing that, those guidelines, that that intensity. Mm. Yeah. So I think it's not that you can't include phrases and sentences, like I say, I, I do, but I don't have in my head, right, we've we're 80% at words, let's move up mm, to phrases, mm. let's get 80% at phrases. I like to be a little bit more fluid, mostly yeah. word level, but I definitely do throw phrases and sentences in. But just me personally and my style, I, I think it's just intuition. I, I do it mm. just to test and probe and to see if it's starting to generalise, but I don't necessarily move up a hierarchy mm. at each level, level. Yeah. yeah does oh, that make awesome. sense yeah absolutely yeah. it makes perfect sense it really does and I think um one of the traps I have is moving through things too quickly and it's nice to mm-hmm. hear you say it's actually okay stay at word level stay there yeah. <laughs> um and maybe you know play around a little bit with it but stay there because I do think sometimes we do want to move through things perhaps a bit too quickly <laughs> and it's okay it's nice to hear you say that word level's fine <laughs> Do you know what I think it is? I feel like um, we're so quick to look at the child for not progressing through therapy quickly versus looking at ourselves and Mm -hmm. saying, hang on, do I know what the intensity recommendations are for this approach and am I implementing them with fidelity? Because it sounds mean, but it's like the problem might be us, not the child. Absolutely, totally. So, yeah, I feel like people want to, yeah, move up and see things move quickly, but it's like you, you need to know what the research is, is kind of saying about, the, you know, that the intensity recommendations because right now, like I said, we don't have those studies saying what it should be. I know what the the average researchers, they kind of use 100 trials mm-hmm. on average, but a lot of the studies, I was shocked how many um, of the studies I read did not even say what their dosage was. Mm, like they which didn't is so say. Important, I was, I was, sh- I was shocked. I was just yeah. like, "What do you mean you weren't tracking that?" But they just, they weren't. And of the studies that did report it, I think yeah, a hundred practice trials, and this is of the correct target. Like I said, if it's fronting. Mm-hmm. We're not saying that T is one trial and no. P is two trials. It's a hundred of the 
key. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that was the average. Mm. So like I said, you, you have to be thinking of this. And mm. I don't know many therapists in Australia because a lot of us are private practice um, who can do twice weekly intervention. No, well, that's right. The it's reality of our, yeah. our messy clinical world is that that's not happening really. Yeah. So you yeah. really have to kind of think about about that and know the framework for that to to then adjust your expectations on how quickly a child would be able to progress through therapy mm. with minimal pairs. Yeah. yeah. Now, one thing we do know about minimal pairs is that how you respond to a correct and an incorrect response is really important. And that's almost the key, I yeah. guess, to its effectiveness. So I'm just really interested to get your tips on good ways to actually respond to correct or incorrect attempts. Yeah. Look, I, I love the nonverbal cues. I'm a big, I've got wrinkles on my face from how confused <laughs> I act, you know, and I, I see videos, you know, I record some therapy yep. videos of me and yeah, it's, um, it's very, I'm a, uh, my mum said I should have done drama, you know, instead of speech pathology. <laughs> she always pushed that. I, I like to pretend, you know, you really have to pretend that you are so utterly confused sometimes that you don't mm. understand what the child is saying because essentially minimal pairs, you know, the child is, they think they're saying key, but they're actually saying T and it doesn't make sense. So you can give that feedback on, um, you know, acting confused, like just wait, did you mean key or did you mean T, you know, which, which one are we saying or which one are we putting the counter down um, just to draw that child's attention so it is, it's all about drawing their attention, but I do love the, um, the, the nonverbal, like pausing, like just mm. pausing or picking up the, the wrong card and having the child yes, look at you and yeah. be like, well, that's what you said. And mom, did, did you hear that one? Because that's what I heard. And, and then it's like, oh, you meant to say key. Well, you have to use your cut sound you know, if that's the one you meant. So it's a lot of drawing their attention and recognising and acknowledging that there is this breakdown and then you offer tips on what they can do to fix or repair it. So, um, yeah. Mm. And how nice is it when they actually repair it themselves yeah. <laughs> when you do all your confusion? That's so lovely, isn't it? <laughs> and you can see that it makes sense because they laugh at you because they know it sounds funny. Because you can, and you yeah. can see that they get it. Because it is, it's kind of like it's up in the head. You know, I kind of think minimal pairs. It's not once they're stimulable. It's not that they can't say the sound. It's not like mm. at that mouth level. It's all up in the head. You know, they've mm. got to realize that what they're saying doesn't make sense. Mm. You know, and it changes the meaning of the word. And if you want me to play with you and understand what you want, you've really got to, you know, make that click. And you've got to make sure it makes sense by using the sound that you know how to say. Um, so I feel like one of the best ways that I do this is I choose games and activities that have the minimal pair word as the motivator or the reinforcer. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. let's say, for example, if we're, because minimal pair cars can be boring and unmotivating. I totally get that. I know that, <laughs> you know, you've really got to work to make them fun and to engage the kids. But sometimes I'll just pick one of the targets. So if I'm working on cluster reduction, for example, 
um, spin is a great one because as SLPs, we've got lots of games and they've mm. got a spinner, you know, and you can spin something. And yeah. so I'll, I'll have my pin card with me, but I won't have my spin card. I'll just have the pin card. And if the child wants a turn to spin, well, then they have to say spin. And if they say pin, I'll say pin. You want my pin? That's really boring. And I'll go, here you go. You have the pin, but I'm going to say spin and I'm going to have a spin. And suddenly they click and they're like, whoa, 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 lady. No, no, no. I want I want to spin. Like <laughs> yeah, I want to yeah, be part yeah. of this game. And so I use that motivation and it, that can really click. So with fronting, you know, go is a great word because you can have a go at something or you can make something go. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I really try to, um, I guess, brainstorm really motivating target words with real life playing games so that the child actually really gets like if they want to be included in the activity that we're doing, they've really got to make that contrast and yeah. tell me go. So that's a good little um, tip, I guess. Yeah, no, that's a great mm. idea. One of my favourite games is we all have Pop-Up Pirate, but yeah, there's yeah. also 25 different versions of Pop-Up Pirate yes. and I've got Pop-Up Olaf, I think it is, and so I call them keys instead of whatever oh, they yeah. are. So that's another one that, yeah, it is just how creative we can be. I love that part of being a paediatric speechy and how we can really use that creative side of our brain to come up with little knacks yeah. like that. You yeah. know, I'm going to have to go out and buy that one now. <laughs> Pop-Up Olive is quite popular in my cupboard, I will say that for sure. I don't know if it would work with Pop-Up Pirate. I think sword, most kids are like, no, that ain't no key. Or (laughs) sometimes I do it with cluster reduction and stick because you want to stick in. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, 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 it is. I think um, the way I do it, you can look at any game in your cupboard and you just have to tweak it so that it makes sense to the kid, like you just explain it. And I feel like you can just be so flexible with games and with you know minimal pairs like that because it's all about the meaning you know mm, absolutely meaningful contrast so yeah, yeah for sure um so I'm just wondering just say you've got a kid you've used minimal pairs for quite some time you've done all your little um sort of clinical decision making thinking oh I need to add some more pairs into the set I'll try this I'll try that but you're still just not quite getting there I'm just wondering what sort of are there indicators that you pick up in your work along the way that makes you think maybe minimal pairs are not the right approach for this little one? I'm always aware of the child's personality. Um, that's a big thing for me and, and just their behaviour. I, I really like, I like the complexity approach. I like that idea of choosing complex targets. So sometimes, you know, if just that if the contrast is too hard um, or if they're very sensitive to that feedback and, you know, kids, they just shut down because Mm. you're acting confused and they just don't like it. Sometimes, you know, I might look at that idea of choosing the complex target. Um, Like with fronting, I've done KL, for example, and and GL targets, and that's actually helped the fronting by by, by picking something. But we just kind of focus not on the contrast, but just on that one kind of target to make that phonological change. Um, Other times, though, and it's usually I don't get too far into therapy when I realise that 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 speech perception is missing. It's like they they can't hear that they mm-hmm. are saying the sound wrong um, and it's like they just need more work on really hearing the difference between the sounds and categorising 
categorizing and figuring out that rule in their head. Mm. Um, and I've got a really interesting little one at the moment that I would love to do minimal pairs with them in the future um, mm. for stopping because stopping is so prevalent in their speech. But they're very, very, very sensitive and they like to get high success. And so mm. I just know it's not the right approach for now. But they, every time, you know, I would do a target sound like F, they would just apply that F sound to every fricative, you know, so they overgeneralize. Mm. So then when I tried S, then they overgeneralized everything to S. And then when I did SH, it was the same thing. So I'm actually working on F, S and SH at the moment, really think seeing if they can identify which sound I'm saying and if they're really good with using the cues and I would like to move to minimal pairs but I just know they've got to figure out this rule in their head because they're they're overgeneralizing mm. and they just don't know it's like they kind of know I got to use a fricative and they just use whatever fricative they're most familiar with but I'm mm. trying to help them realize no there's different fricatives there's different long sounds and we've really got to listen and perceive and see here if it makes sense otherwise everything was like for ship or so fun you know you'd just mm. be like I'm going to put an s sound at the front so mm. I just feel like you've really just got to I don't always commit to minimal pairs at the start and I let parents know sometimes my first three to four sessions I might try a couple of different approaches or I probe different things to see which is the best fit for the child versus printing out all my minimal pair mm. cards and getting ready for minimal pairs and realizing that first session is a fail. I kind of feel like it's okay to probe and trial something mm. before you really go for it. Mm, that's awesome. So what would you say as maybe your one or two big key take-home messages to clinicians in regards to minimal pairs? What would that be? You've got to understand the framework. If you understand the framework, then you can be really confident in your problem solving and making tweaks. But if you don't know, um, you know, the basic general therapy steps and the idea of the intensity guidelines and recommendations, you're really going in blind mm -hmm. and you're setting yourself up for failure, to be honest. So I just think you've really got to have a good little basis on what it is and be confident to be able to explain to a parent what the approach is, why you're using it and what the expectations are. And if you can't, I would just say you really have to to look at it because there's so much evidence on this approach. Mm. And as I've said, I've actually, I've done three sessions before, like from three therapy sessions and exited children because the approach has just clicked, which is amazing. Yeah, you know, and so these are job kids satisfying. Who, these are kids who are not stimulable for a K and an L. I've had three kids um, in the last two years that have literally been um, out my door after three sessions because it's just in conversation and it just clicked. But mm. it's because I really knew my framework and I knew the, the decisions to make. So, mm. oh, Well said. Now, I'm wondering if I can just take a sidestep away from minimal pairs, if that's okay. Um, and I know that um, following you on your socials that I have sort of noticed um, even in the last month or so that you've been really, really open about um, talking about your work burnout last year. Um, yeah. And I'm just wondering if you don't mind sort of chatting to us a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. I really want to normalize all of this and I definitely don't want to portray myself as a um, Instagram perfect SLP. So uh, you can ask me anything. Yeah. 
So what happened last year? I mean, it was a really tricky year for all of us, let's be honest. It was not easy, particularly for the states that were really heavily impacted by lockdowns, et cetera. But, you know, what, what happened last year that got you to the point where you felt burnt out? I think as a lot of SLPs can be so passionate and we take so much work home and I think I was just getting up early in the morning and I was, you know, doing work. And this was for adventures in speech pathology, but also for my clinic work, you know, with my kids. And then I was, you know, doing a lot of stuff at nighttime, doing lots of PD, you know, listening to podcasts. I was just too immersed in the speech pathology world. And I just felt like I turned into a little bit of a workaholic, you know, Mm. and just stressed that I didn't know this and people were asking me questions on that. And then I started to feel that, um, People had such a high expectation of me. I used to get like 50 to 60 messages in my Instagram inbox of people asking me, what would you do for that kid? And what would you do for this kid? And I I knew the answers and I could give them a quick, like, you know, answer, but it was just too much. And I was just Mm -hmm. like, I'm not, I know I'm accessible on Instagram, but I'm not a supervisor. I'm not your colleague. Like you're, you're, you're putting a lot of this on me and as in this SLP, I want to help. And it it just got too much. And I just felt like I just couldn't be everything to everyone. Mm. And then that just impacted me being a parent. I felt like Mm. I was this cranky parent, you know, and I didn't like being this cranky parent because people see me as this passionate, fun SLP. And I felt like I'm not the mum that you see me as the SLP and I started feeling really bad about that and yeah everything just got too much and so Mm. I just um I just had to really take a step back and set real boundaries into how much I was going to work and how much of my speech pathology life I was going to let infiltrate my real life basically Mm. so I I, yeah saw a psychologist last year um to help just with managing expectations on myself and that was a really good first step and now I've got a life coach actually that's really helping to keep me in balance and just nurture myself first and just really put life I guess into perspective. Mm. And I've noticed you've done some practical things too I know on your website it's really quite nice to see you've got that disclaimer that says (laughs) I do this but I do not do this. And that's kind of one of the things that comes up on your web page, um, yeah. I think the first homepage actually. Um, but that's, uh, I think I'm just sort of thinking of um, sort of practical things that you've actually done to support yourself. And that's one. Yeah. Has there been other practical things that you've done to put those sort of work-life boundaries in place for yourself? Yeah, there is. I, I've i started just to have this really clear boundary that I'm not going to answer those simple case questions. Like, you know, mm-hmm. how would you help facilitate a K sound, you know, little things. Cause it's just like, well, there's a hundred ways to answer it. But one of the best things I've done is I've got a, um, like a, a script, I guess. Um, it's a nice feature on Instagram, but I've actually copy pasted it to my email as well. And it just outlines, um, that, you know, I really do love helping people, but I'm trying to have more healthy boundaries in place and I'm unable to, you know, answer case questions, which, this was highlighted in um, a recent speak out issue about, mm, you know, social mm. media, I know, in Speech Pathology Australia. And so I've put that as a disclaimer, but I've said, if you do want to post a question, this is a really great Facebook group. It's an evidence-based um, 
Facebook group for speech language pathologists and a lot of the researchers are on there. So post on this book, uh, sorry, post on that Facebook page. I've recommended two of my favourite textbooks um, for working with speech sound disorders and then I've suggested that people can search my website if they'd like. So I guess it's putting it back on the people Mm. um, versus what I felt like, you know, coming to me for the answer. We've Mm. got colleagues as, um, you know, Speech Pathology Australia say there's mentoring. I used to do mentoring and be a mentor. I've been on both sides with Speech Pathology Australia. So yeah, I just put my boundaries out there. I had this copy paste draft that I could send to people. And that really, really helped me and just being Mm. really clear with what was serving me and what wasn't. Well, thank you for being vulnerable and chatting about that too. I, I, you know, burnout is a real, real thing in our profession. Yeah. And I think we need to be, you know, chatting about our experiences yeah. more and putting it out there because sometimes we carry this behind closed doors. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, now I know you are a busy bee, but hopefully a busy bee with boundaries this year. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just um, intrigued to know what you've got in the pipeline this year. I know you always have, you know, interesting projects ahead. So what's, what can we look yeah. out for? I'm so excited to um, be an author with Bjorn Speech Publications and getting these like physical cards. So my resources are all digital, but it means you've got to print, laminate, cut, and that's a lot of time for SLPs. But I've got these cards and they're going to be minimal pair decks, but the artwork is just Mm -hmm. like I could, I've got tears thinking about the artwork. We've got this amazing team where we're really thinking about representing children and representing, it's just very diverse you know, it's it's very, very diverse and representative artwork. And we want kids to say, that looks like me or my mm. that's that looks like my mom or I relate to that. So that's really exciting. That's one of my big projects for this year. But I've also um I am at the planning stages for another handbook. So I've got, you know, the minimal pairs handbook, which is what sparked my this whole minimal pairs journey for me. I just wanted to really learn about it. So I'm hoping to release that in the middle of the year Mm -hmm. and then exciting for me is I'm actually going to be an exhibitor at the Speech Pathology Australia conference so I saw that too I'm so excited just to you know meet people because I work on my own I'm the only SLP in the building and it's a very much adult um, focused centre where I work at I'm pretty much the only paediatric person so I miss colleagues and I miss talking to speeches so I'm just so excited to be able to um yeah, connect with speech pathologists, um, yeah, in Australia. Oh. We do that every year. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. How exciting that we get to have a face-to-face conference again yes, this year. I'm I know. Bursting with excitement about that and, yeah, look forward to welcoming you to Melbourne and saying yeah. hi. Um, now, thank you so, so much. I just, the biggest, most enormous thank you for joining me. It's just been so lovely chatting with you. And also thank you for all of the things that you do for our grassroots speech pathologists. I know it's so great that you've got some boundaries in place, but just the resources you put together are fabulous and so well used. um, And someone has to put the work into doing that. And we thank you for being one of the people that do put the work in for doing that, because um, without people like you, we are spending hours upon hours upon hours putting things together ourselves so thank you so much for that thank you and all the best with those projects too and for a happy positive well-balanced year also 
And as I, I said this before the podcast, but we need to have a bigger conversation about real life SLP and burnout and, and things like that. I think there's um, more space for this and I would really love to be involved in this conversation and normalise how a lot of speech pathologists feel and expectations. Absolutely. I think I've yeah. locked you in, so yep. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much to everyone for tuning in. Have a super week ahead and please join us again next Wednesday for another Speak Up conversation. Thanks again, Rebecca. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in 